0: Welcome to Oncro Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Oncro Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this uh, today. It's, it's uh, May seventh, 2020, and um, I know we make jokes that everyone's forgetting what day it was, but I really did forget what today's date was. Uh, I thought it was a th- I thought it was a Wednesday. It's a Thursday. Uh, I felt super productive today doing a lot of good work, record a podcast in the Landmarks of Onco Farm series that will come out at a later date. Uh, got everything prepped for Thursday's pod, which I thought I would record tomorrow, but it turns out I'm recording now uh, in the evening after we've transitioned into the happy hour. So let's just get right into it. Uh, earlier this week, uh, the FDA approved um, Derotumumab with hyaluronidase, so sub Q, subcutaneous deritumab, and the brand name here is Darzalex Fast Pro. And of course, the hyaluronidase breaks down uh, hyaluronan, which is in connective tissue, and breaking down that connective tissue allows for increased volume of administration. So typically, a sub Q administration, you could hold maybe, you know, two mil. You can incorporate up to fifteen mil. With this formulation, because that is the administration volume for daratumumab. Now, this approval is based off of uh, basically equivalent or you know similar response rate compared to daratumumab, as well as uh, similar uh, trough concentration prior to the third dose. So, seem to be the metrics that got it approved. Um, So, real quick, just some comparisons. Now that we have three sub Q uh, monoclonal antibodies, we have the daratumab, which is a 15 mil, 15 milliliter. Uh, volume uh, that is infused over um, three to five minutes, um, and it needs to be administered three inches left or right of the navel. Now, the sub-Q rituximab is either 11.7 mils or 13.4 mils based on the dose. There are two doses for uh, rituximab uh, hyaluronidase, uh, either over five minutes for the smaller dose or seven minutes for the larger dose. And then there's sub-Q trastuzumab, which is a, uh, a 5 ml, so the smallest volume, over 2 to 5 minutes. So the, so the sub-Q trastuzumab is going to be uh, uh, the easiest uh, to give as far as uh, volume. Uh, now, you, I was surprised. Uh, like with rituximab sub, subcutaneous, they have to tolerate an IV infusion first before they could do the sub-Q. Uh, with trastuzumab, they can get sub-Q with the first dose. But I really expected that you would have to tolerate an IV infusion of daratumab prior to subQ because that was the the precedent set by subQ or TuxMap. However, with daratumab, you can get subQ your very first time. You know, when daratumab was first approved, uh, you know, there's a warning precaution for infusion reactions that happen in, in more than half of the patients. Uh, and, you know, we didn't have any experience locally when it was approved, so we actually set our protocol to be a two-day infusion of daratumab so that if they didn't tolerate it and we had to stop the infusion, we didn't waste a, a, an entire dose. So, um, Seems to be fewer infusion-related reactions with sub daratumab uh, 11% total uh, infusion reactions with sub-Q-Daratumab. Uh, 10% with the first dose, then 0.2 with the second dose, and then all the rest afterwards add up to 0.8%. Uh, so it seems to be safer, seems to be equally effective, and certainly is going to be a shorter time in the chair for patients, and apparently it's going to be the same price. So it seems to be a win uh, all around, which... Uh, certainly will take uh, in today's times and any times. All right, so that's subcute dare 2 map. Let's talk about met exon 14 skipping mutations. All right, so met stands for mesenchymal epithelial transition, which maybe hints at its role in embryonic development. So met is kind of your tra- your typical transmembrane receptor tyrosine kinase. So there's a ligand that binds with that ligand is hepatocyte growth factor. Uh, after bo- after ligand binding the, the receptor dimerizes, and there's uh, intracellular phosphorylation that, that leads to a whole signal transduction uh, either via MAP kinase, PI3 kinase, the STAT pathway, uh, NF-kappa-B, um, you know, the typical thing, right? Uh, and MET is uh, normally expressed in epithelial cells, neurons, hematopoietic uh, cells, endothelial cells, and hepatocytes. Remember the ligand for met is a hepatocyte growth factor. In fact, met is also known as hepatocyte growth factor receptor. So abnormal met activity in the form of met amplification, met overexpression or met mutations and we're talking point mutations is, you know, described like lots of things but doesn't appear to be that important. Otherwise, we'd have a drug approved already for it, right? However, there is one type of mutation. It's called an exon-14 skipping mutation that appears to be an oncogenic driver. So what does that mean? Skipping. By the way, skipping, if you're ever sad, just go skip because you cannot be happy while skipping. No one who skips ever looks sad. Skipping is just, by definition, a joyous act. It's a joyful thing. Uh, That's neither here nor there. So... Uh, if we go back to some basic biochemistry, you got your DNA. That's then transcribed uh, or translated. It's I don't know. It's copied into RNA. All right. Now that RNA copy has has uh, sections that are called exons, which are then expressed in messenger RNA, and then that's copied into your protein uh, or translated into your protein. And then introns, which are cut out. So an exon skip, exon fourteen skipping mutation, is where exon-14 gets cut out and treated like an intron, and therefore it's not expressed. And that's important for MET because exon-14 is the membrane position. And that juxta membrane position, it's on the inside of the cell right next to the plasma membrane. Exon-14 is where the off switch is for MET. So the way that MET typically works is your ligand binds to MET active. And then the natural off switch is something binds to exon-14, and that kicks off the ligand. All right. So think of it this way. The on switch is outside the cell, the MET receptor. The off switch is in exon 14. So if you splice out exon 14 accidentally, the on switch still works, but now there's no off switch. There's no way to turn off MET. And then you get this, this upregulated activation of the MET pathway that then goes on into potentially MAP kinase, PI3 kinase, all these different pathways uh, depending on where it is. Okay. So you can see why that would be bad. Well, exon 14 skipping mutations are found somewhat commonly. They're found in about 3% of adenocarcinomas of the lung, maybe 2% of squamous cell carcinomas of the lung, so that would be maybe 5% of non-small cell lung cancers, a little bit less probably. Also found in bladder cancer, head and neck cancer, renal cell carcinoma, as well as colon cancer. Now that all all leads us to uh, a couple days ago, no yesterday. Yesterday, geez, what day is it? Right, uh, May sixth. The FDA approved capmatinib, brand name tebrecta t- which I really wish was called capmetinib. Like, why why use M A T for met inhibitor? Because that's gonna be confusing, right? Because we got trametinib and benimetinib. We already have drugs with M E T in the middle that are actually MET inhibitors, not MET inhibitors. So, uh, this naming thing. So anyway, uh, capmatinib was approved for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with a MET exon 14 skipping mutation identified via foundation one. So there's a tandem test that's approved. And guess what? Guess what the primary endpoint was that got the approval, and guess how many patients there were. And if you guessed response rate with an N of less than 100, you're exactly right. So we have an objective response rate in total of 48% when you include the partial and complete responses in 97 patients. Now, what's interesting here is that there were 28 patients who were treatment naive in this study. And this is called geometry mono one. And then 69 patients who were previously treated. The response rate in the 28 patients that were treatment naive. So first, there's their first line treatment for their metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. In those 28 patients, the response rate was 68%, which is pretty good. It's 41% in the 69 who were previously treated. So what we see here is the drug appears to work better in the frontline setting. And we see this with many, many drugs. Of course, your best chance to treat a malignancy is in the first-line setting, and in the second-line setting, you expect your response rates to go down, right? And we see that here. Uh, The median duration of response for those that were treatment-naive was about 12 months, nine months for those previously treated. And this is notable because the approval for this is not in patients who have previously received, say, standard treatment for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, which would be platinum-based chemo plus immunotherapy. No, the approval is anybody with metastatic. So that would include first-line treatment. And recall, this drug was studied in 28 patients in the frontline setting, and that's the approval. Okay, so some basics about the drug. Uh, the dose is 400 milligrams PO twice daily. It's going to come in 200 and 150 milligram tablets, so I have to take at least two tablets twice a day. can be taken without regard to food. Uh, it's a very acidic compound. It's got a pretty low pKa, uh, so as pH goes up, absorption seems to, or solubility decreases, and that can decrease absorption. So a PPI decreases the AUC by about 25%, um, and that is not deemed clinically relevant by the PI because it's not listed as a drug interaction, but if you're on a PPI, you're getting 75% of the dose, it appears, uh, at least as a single dose. Uh, There is a warning precaution, and you could see this coming a mile away for a kinase inhibitor in lung cancer, interstitial lung disease. Four and a half percent, so reasonably high percentage here, um, median time to onset of interstitial lung disease for these patients was 1.4 months, so you'll see this pretty quickly, it seems, if it'll happen, although the range was right away to over a year. There's also a box warning for hepatotoxicity. Uh, 13% is listed as the increase in ast in one part of in like section five of the PI where they list the warnings precautions and that's just in the patients with lung cancer. If you look at the 300 plus patients in total who've received this drug in other trials, that increase in ALT, ALT and AST was like 33%. So LFT monitoring is recommended every two weeks for the first three months and then monthly. Remember, Met ligand is hepatocyte growth factor, so certainly MET has a crucial role in the maintenance of normal hepatocyte function. Uh, based on animal models, there's a risk of photosensitivity. Uh, now that risk came at kind of an equivalent concentration that was in excess of what patients should get at a normal dose, uh, but still there would be, uh, there is a box, not a box warning, but a warning statement about photosensitivity, so patients need to be counseled to wear sunscreen and sun-avoiding clothing, and then, of course, a box warning for embryo-fetal toxicity. I kind of alluded to it before. Met has a crucial role in embryonic development. Uh, other notable toxicities include peripheral edema and about half and 9%, that was grade 3 or 4. Fatigue in a third, and 8%, that was severe, grade 3 or 4. Nausea in 44%. Fewer than 3% of patients, though, had a grade 3 or 4 nausea event. Diarrhea, only 18%, fairly low for a kinase inhibitor that's taken orally, especially one that has a fairly low bioavailability. Uh, fever in 14%, decreased lymphocyte rate in 44%, 14% of that being uh, grade 3 or 4. Uh, decrease decreased leukocyte rate in 23 uh, percent less than one percent that being severe grade three or four so uh, generally we, we think of tyrosine kinase inhibitors of having you know relatively uh, not severe toxicity so we don't worry about severe neutropenia for example or severe thrombocytopenia but we seem to see a very wide breadth of toxicities this looks to be a fairly narrow spectrum of activity of course it's only been studied in fewer than 500 humans. So we don't know that one in a thousand toxicity has not been found yet. And over and over again, as these drugs got into practice and used more and more in patients, we do see more toxicities in greater numbers. So that remains to be seen. Now, from a drug-drug interaction potential, it's a 3-4 substrate. So we know that there are going to be interactions with potent 3-4 inhibitors and strong 3-4 inducers. Uh, itraconazole, a strong 3A4 inhibitor, increases the exposure or AUC of capmatinib by only 42%, so not, not a huge interaction, certainly not as strong as an interaction with, say, venetoclax and itraconazole. Um, capmatinib is a CYP1A2 inhibitor, uh, and CYP1A2 is the metabolic breakdown pathway for the most commonly used drug in the world, caffeine, and capmatinib increases the AUC or the exposure of uh, metformin by 134%, which basically means you need to cut down your caffeine consumption by half if you started this drug, or else you're going to be wired, potentially have tachycardia and that sort of stuff. It also inhibits P-glycoprotein, increases the digoxin uh, exposure, AUC, by uh, by half, basically increases it to 47% above normal, and it inhibits MATE1 and MATE2K, which are these uh, renal transporters. Um, Now, there was no testing of MATE1 or MATE2K substrates. Uh, so we, we know that uh, metformin, for example, is a substrate for both of these transporters. Uh, we think levofloxacin is for MATE1, uh, and FDA's website doesn't issue any guidance on typical substrates that we should test for this. Now, what's interesting is the PI says it inhibits MATE1, inhibits MATE2K, and then it lists a whole bunch of other transporters uh, that cat does not inhibit. It does inhibit like OCT1, it does not inhibit uh, OP1B1. But there's no mention of does it inhibit uh, OCT2, OCT2, which we talked about uh, with tocatinib, and inhibiting OCT2 is going to increase metformin exposure. It's going to increase creatinine as well. And the reason I bring that up is increased creatinine occurred in two thirds of patients receiving this drug, and we don't know if that uh, leads to inhibit if the drug actually inhibits OCT2 because it doesn't appear to have been studied. Uh, So you know, this was approved via the accelerated approval pathway. And at least with regards to OCT2, it it appears to have been approved uh, in a more accelerated fashion than we would like from a safety standpoint to really know the full drug-drug interaction potential. But appears to be, appears again, just response rate, appears to be an attractive option for these patients with non-small cell lung cancer uh, receiving um, uh, targeted therapy with this met inhibitor. I'll also point out, just real quick, there are two drugs already on the market that are MET inhibitors. To some degree, crizotinib and cabozantinib do inhibit MET as well. So, uh, and again, uh, MET exon 14 skipping uh, has been seen in other malignancies. So, for those folks that uh, you know work in precision-guided or genomics uh, clinics, you might see this drug uh, used off-label if they get paid for in other malignancies as well that have that MET exon 14 skipping mutation. Well, that's what I have on this really beautiful, uh, although chilly, day here uh, in Johnson City. Uh, you can always follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.